Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Friday afternoon, November the 11th, um, so Veterans Day 2022. We've got uh, an interesting uh, lineup for this afternoon, but definitely want to take a second to to say, you know, thank you to all the veterans out there for their service, um, whether here in the U.S. Or, or really globally, people who make that decision um, to serve serve their countries uh yeah definitely something to be commended and celebrated every day but particularly on um on veterans day so i'll throw that out there before i uh kick it to you and say uh what are we talking about yeah just i will quickly echo that this episode isn't going to come out until well after veterans day but we might as well take this opportunity to thank all of the veterans in in our lives and in the country in general as you and i have talked about many times around holidays like this too often it's just a day off or from school or work or a chance to have an extra beer or barbecue or something like that. But we do want to take at least a little bit of time to appreciate all the men and women that have and continue to sacrifice to protect our ability to have conversations like this, Ricky. Yeah, it's, uh, it is definitely remarkable. I think sometimes obviously uh, can criticize government decisions in terms of armed conflict and things like that. But um, the men and women that sort of serve, um, they do so just strictly for the benefit of the country. And they kind of trust some other people to make those decisions. And I think we often, or we can be critical of those decisions, but never, never of the men and women who are serving. Absolutely. All right, so to transition into what we will be talking about today, we're going to be talking about two topics that you and I have talked about offline and wanted to talk about on this online, on this podcast for a few weeks at least now. And the two issues are anti-Semitism and political violence, both of which unfortunately have seen a real rise in the United States and across the world in the last few years. And to have that conversation, we are incredibly fortunate to be joined by another phenomenal guest. We're going to be joined by Jeff Robbins. Jeff's a Boston lawyer. He's a former U.S. delegate to the U.N. Human Rights Commission and a former counsel to a couple of U.S. Senate committees. I'll give more of a a background, in-depth background when Jeff comes on, but just another phenomenally well-credentialed and intelligent guest that is going to join us to have those conversations today to to give them a little more legitimacy than uh, than you and I. But I will say these are these are challenging topics for sure, but topics that we have neglected for too long. So while I'm not excited to talk about how the the increase in the problems of anti-Semitism, political violence, I am excited to finally have these conversations because they, they've been needed. Yeah, definitely looking forward to getting into some of this stuff. Um, as you said, we've been it's been sort of lurking in the background and we've kind of felt like we had other more important things, but in some way, this is, this could be some of the most important stuff that we talk about. So really looking forward to getting into it with Jeff. 
Sure. And before we bring Jeff on, just a quick reminder to everyone out there that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, the, the founder of the company, reached out to me the other day, and he had gotten this order for a table that they had that you know he was going to have to build. And the owner had told them the dimensions of the table and you know some specifications, but they said choose whatever kind of wood you want. So, do you know what kind of wood he went with? Can't say that I do. Well, he went with the most popular kind of wood, of course. <laughs> Man, your wood puns are just getting. <laughs> Again. Hopefully, on a bounce back. Last time we recorded together, you didn't get it at all. So that, that, at least you, I got a chuckle out of you on that one. All right, <laughs> let's bring on Jeff. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome Jeff Robbins to the program. Jeff is an attorney for uh, a private firm here in Boston. He's been practicing as a litigator and a trial lawyer for more than 35 years. He's represented numerous parties and numerous high-profile cases. Perhaps most notably, he's led uh, successful defenses of newspapers and other companies who had been sued for defamation, which resulted in two seminal defamation decisions issued by the Mass SJC. Uh, But prior to his current gig in private practice, Jeff was the assistant U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. And he was also, in 1999 and 2000, a U.S. delegate to the United Nations Convention on Human Rights in Geneva. Uh, He's also the former chairman of the New England Board of the Anti-Defamation League and the former president of the World Affairs Council in Boston. And beyond all of that, uh, Jeff also is a weekly columnist for the Boston Herald, where he writes about politics, foreign policy, and national security issues. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's an, an impressive array of experiences and, and background you got there in your bio. You live long enough, uh, you get to kind of tack these things on and make them look as though they're more than they actually are. Uh, I, I don't know about that, but we, we appreciate the, the humility. Uh, we were also joking before we started recording that Jeff is a graduate of BU Law, which continues our remarkable streak of Boston University graduates um, joining the program. So again, Jeff, thanks so much for your time today. So the reason we reached out to Jeff to to get him on the program was due to a couple of issues that Ricky and I had been wanting to talk about for a few weeks, but because the midterms just consumed so much of the oxygen out there and, and the, were the focus of our episodes throughout all of October, we hadn't talked about them yet. So the two main issues that we're going to be talking about with Jeff today are the rise in anti-Semitism and the rise in political violence. And we reached out to Jeff because he has written extensively on both of those topics in the past year. So we're going to start with anti-Semitism. And Jeff, you've written two columns, at least for the Herald in the last year. You wrote back in March about all of the different kind of slings and arrows that Jewish people have been forced to endure, not only throughout history, but increasingly recently. And then you wrote in September about a particular case of anti-Semitism on the campus of the University of Vermont. So why why have you been writing about these topics seemingly increasingly over the past year? Well, um, thank you for that. Uh, I, I will confess that I 
don't relish uh, writing about anti-Semitism. In fact, I tend, I think, to shy away from it. Um, I'm Jewish, and I therefore feel it more acutely than, 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 than others, as other Jews do. And there is something both upsetting and um, a little bit humiliating uh, about writing about it. Uh, and of course, uh, I, I don't want to sort of bang the drum too frequently, lest I be pegged as a one-note Johnny. Um, on the other hand, the scourge of anti-Semitism, which as you point out is not exactly a new one, has really um, uh, taken on a, a really dangerous um, uh, quality over the last several years. It has been normalized um, in certain sectors. It has resulted in a demonstrable, objectively demonstrable uh, increase, surge, in fact, in, in manifestations of anti-Semitism. Um, I am very fearful that Jewish kids on campuses uh, are, um, are, are being pressured to sort of run for the hills and conceal their Jewish identities. Um, I think that the uh, venom directed against Jews in America increasingly, and it pains me to even say those words because it sounds, it sounds more melodramatic than I would like to permit myself to sound, comes from both the right and the left, with each uh, um, denying to the hills that they are responsible for it. <clears throat> On the right, uh, there is the, the stuff from the so-called predictable quarters, the kind of the white supremacists, and there is a massive sort of underground uh, or not so underground uh, demonization of Jews on social media and elsewhere uh, Manifesting, by the way, in, 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 among other things, in outright attacks. Um, you can't go a day without seeing a series of, of video, videos of attacks on Orthodox Jews or swastikas being uh, hung in various places. And it is, you know, you hate to invoke the 1930s because it seems, as I say, melodramatic, but there are overtones of that. <clears throat> That's on the right. On the left, in my view, uh, there is a concerted, deliberate effort on the part of some to scare the bejesus out of Jewish kids on campuses and try to get them to renounce, in effect, that part of their Jewish identity, which is related to Israel. <coughs> um, there's an organization called Students for Justice in Palestine, which has engaged in some really horrific uh, behavior all over campuses in America. Um, uh, in Boston, we've had the so-called mapping project, which you may have seen something about, which uh, involves essentially uh, a, a public uh, identification of, uh, with ominous overtones of supposedly Zionistic uh, you know, conspirators that, that, that you know, contribute to the colonial apartheid and so forth on on, and on uh, Israeli regime. Uh, on campuses, there have been uh, calls, for example, at Tufts to get uh, kids to sign a petition that they will have nothing whatsoever to do with any 
Jewish organization, because by definition, it will have some kind of connection to Israel. Uh, and on and on it goes. So I am really concerned about the pincer movement uh, that, that Jews in America and elsewhere seem to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, facing both from the far right and the far left, but with the pincers moving into the middle a little bit more than we sometimes would like to think. So there's, there's a couple of things there that you touched on that I, I want to get in a little more depth with. I want to touch on like anti-Israel sentiment and how that relates to anti-Semitism in general shortly. But you you mentioned, and it's like you say, it, it feels mel- melodramatic in some ways to invoke the 1930s, which is obviously the apex, the zenith of, of anti-Semitism. But is are you able to attribute the recent rise in the last five years of anti-Semitism to anything in particular? So before you, you answer that, just like a number of examples I was thinking about as I was preparing for this top of my head, obviously you had the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville with the, the chant on video, Jews will not replace us. Um, you've had the hate groups that you allude to. President Trump, though he was very much pro-Israel during his administration just a couple of weeks ago, tweeted that Jews need to like get their act together before it's too late, almost like an or else type type tweet. On, on the other hand, uh, you have had you know Kanye coming out that who knows where Kanye lies in the political spectrum, but he's you know saying that he's going to go DEFCON DEFCON one on Jews, and then you've had reps like Ilan Omar or Rashida Tlaib or Ayanna Presley, Cory Bush, who have who seem to take more anti-Israeli, perhaps even anti-Semitic steps. Uh, you've had Kyrie Irving come out just in the last couple of weeks and, and tweet this video that had hugely anti-Semitic tropes and, and under and overtones in it. And it just feels like, I guess for Jewish people, it probably doesn't seem like it came out of nowhere, but it, it seems at least for me that it's like, wh- where did this rise in anti-Semitism just sort of come from? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's a heck of a good question. Um, the first thing that has to be said is it, it has been here forever. I mean, it has been a constant. Um, it has been a staple of the human experience for, you know, millennia. On the other hand, you are right, in my view, that there has been a tsunami of it. And you've just given great and very... Uh, compelling, uh, unmistakable examples of it. Um, So obviously the, in my view at least, there has been in the last six years, not coincidentally, um, a lifting of the rock in America, which from which a lot of uh, poisonous stuff, if you'll forgive the mixed metaphor, has crawled. Um, and the, uh, the white replacement stuff, the white supremacist stuff, uh, the <clears throat> look at us, we can now say all of the venomous, cruel, um, uh, you know, homophobic, uh, white supremacist, anti-Semitic stuff we've always wanted to say and isn't it wonderful now? Uh, I mean, there are consequences to that. When, when that rock is lifted, when it's no longer considered shameful across the board, unacceptable across the board, 
to express that, well, guess what? It gets expressed. And then it bleed, the, those expressions bleed into the body politic, bleed into society, uh, normalize and make acceptable that stuff. And, and, and I don't know whether to blame it on Donald Trump. I don't blame it entirely on Donald Trump because frankly, in my opinion, he got elected taking advantage of that. He, he got elected in part, in substantial part, because he understood that that sentiment was there, the let's beat up journalists, let's, uh, you know, uh, let's beat the crap out of these people, and on and on and on it goes. The normalization, even the, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the kind of the, the praise heaped on that kind of viciousness, it has an impact. It has an impact. Uh, people say words matter. Well, that's true. And when they come from the president of the United States, they really matter. And I'm afraid, frankly, that there has been lifted this rock from which bad stuff has crawled and on the right. And I don't know how you put that stuff back under the rock where it belongs uh, once that has occurred. That's on the right. On the left... <clears throat> Um, unfortunately, in my view, I think that there has been a, there has been a demonization of Israel um, forever since its existence, and I I do hold people uh, like Ilhan Omar, but certainly not her alone, responsible for it. I I reject the all too clever uh, distinction between anti. Israelism or anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism simply because, I mean, <clears throat> Zionism is an integral part of the Jewish identity of most Jews. So it's too cute by half, in my opinion, to try to separate those out. When Ilhan Omar says, it's all about the Benjamin's baby, um, that, is, that is the classic anti-Semitic trope. It's, it suggests that people are being paid off with cash, that it's Jewish money. Uh, <clears throat> she can pretend that that's something other than anti-Semitism all she wants. Of course she can. <coughs> it's anti-Semitism. Um, when, uh, when the, you know, uh, Jews are demonized for their support for Israel, or Israel is called a Nazi state, or accused of drinking the blood of Palestinians or massacring people and these over-the-top charges uh, that, for example, occurred after the Gaza confrontation of two Mays ago. Uh, and charges are made that are way over the top. Um, it's hard to imagine that those charges would be made quite the same way in another context. And that helped contribute to a surge of attacks on Jews and uh, the kind of isolation uh, of Jews and Jewish kids on campus. The percentage of Jewish kids on campus who are now afraid to express their identity, let alone to express their support for Israel, uh, or who go underground, or who are sort of uh, fearful that they'll be ostracized socially for good reason. You've got example after example, for example, of Jewish kids uh, being uh, told by student bodies, uh, student councils or governing bodies, 
Um, do you think that you can, uh, are you qualified? Uh, don't you have a conflict of interest being a student this or a student that because you're Jewish? I mean, are you kidding? Are you really? I mean, substitute black, substitute Asian American, substitute Catholic, substitute anything else for that, that would never pass among people who hold themselves out as being progressives. My fear is that it is fashionable now increasingly in progressive circles to either engage in that sort of stuff or at least indulge it. I guess uh, I, I wanna bring it back to something that you said earlier about sort of lifting lifting the rock and, and sort of having a, a lot of this stuff out in the open. And I guess I'm curious how you view that. Obviously, the outward acts of anti-Semitism notwithstanding, just the idea that it, it feels like throughout our history, we've had moments of uh, sort of like, you know, crescendos is probably not the right word, but, you know, World War II and then, and then sort of the decline of kind of outward anti-Semitism after that. And, and now sort of we're seeing a resurgence. How much do you view kind of bringing some of these things to light that have clearly been in sort of the undercurrents uh, of American sort of society and, and, and really more globally out into the open to act to perhaps like give us an opportunity to actually deal with them in a way that when nobody was saying it, but maybe a lot of people were thinking these things, we haven't had that sort of opportunity. I mean, it's, it's such a good question, right? I mean, is it better that it be kept under the rock or that the rock be lifted so that it seeps out or, or comes pouring out as the case may be and we can quote unquote deal with it? I guess in, in honesty, I prefer that it was kept under the rock, uh, which I realize, you know, not everybody would agree with. I mean, I, I think that where be certain behavior is regarded as disgusting and loathsome and unacceptable, literally unacceptable, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's where that belongs. I'm concerned that it is uh, a lot more acceptable uh, than it ever was. And I think the proof is in the proverbial pudding. I mean, the, the, um, and I don't, by the way, put anti-Semitism in a category by itself. I kind of, uh, certainly on the on the far right or the right, whichever you want to say. I mean, it is it is uh, bound up with homophobia and anti-Muslim uh, uh, conduct and anti-Asian American conduct and anti and 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 and, and racist conduct. You know. Words like racist, my daughter, who is 30, would always use the phrase racist. Everything was, and it, it, it bothered me deeply because I felt like it was, um, it was excessive. I never bought off on the word racism, I, you know, in structural racism, this and structural racism, that, and here racism, there racism, everywhere racism, racism, you know, old MacDonald had, and so forth. Uh, but I have to concede that, uh, you know, uh, I, that my daughter was right. Uh, the extent of it is not capable of being ignored. For me, this is maybe beside the point, 
uh, where I found myself willing to go there with that word uh, somehow was tied to the pandemic. When in the early days of the pandemic, one saw communities of color basically propping up the rest of American society because they were providing health care and elder care and, and providing food and, function and, and services of various kinds. The communities of color in America who began in the worst possible shape and who were hit the hardest by the pandemic were in fact holding up American society during those months, certainly, of the pandemic. And to me, that was really graphic. Um, and somehow or other, in those days, I think, I began to hear myself using the word racist more than I would have allowed myself to use it before. And, 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 and honestly, with, with all deference to the fact that there are lots of different political perspectives, um, you know, and one wants to be respectful of that, I do indict Trump and his followers, of whom there are tens of millions, for fomenting and promoting and indulging and encouraging and uh, celebrating even the kind of gross uh, anti-civil indecent behavior that Americans have always uh, uh, prided themselves on opposing. Uh, this kind of gets into the second topic I know, which is political violence, but to me, they're very much linked. Um, you know, uh, there are good people on both sides. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I regard the rhetoric and the conduct of the period from 2016 forward as grotesque, as a, as a dire threat to American values. And I, I don't, hope I'm not straying too far afield. You know, one of the, uh, you know, just as, uh, you know, waves and currents and so forth, you know, sweep out into the open, open sea, all kinds of um, elements which are not great. I, I, I think that the, the advent of Trump and the Trump era has um, made perfectly defensible, somehow or other, the worst kind of, uh, you know, in uncivil, indecent vitriol. And anti-Semitism in that sphere of American society is just part of that. Sure. And I think all of what you just said is totally fair. I wouldn't push back on much of any of it. But all of those other sorts of isms that you pointed out, the racism, the, you know, the homophobia, the sexism, misogyny, anti-LGBTQ stuff, when we see that from the right, you see outcry and pushback from the left, deservedly so there just objectively hasn't been that same pushback from the left on with anti-Semitism. And I know 
Ricky's not going to like this because we don't we don't look to the NBA for our like role models here. But they have objectively, I think, been the most politically and socially active and progressive league in a lot of ways. And when a report came out about the Phoenix Suns owner making misogynistic and racist comments, everyone was quick to condemn him. You have one of its biggest players, celebrities, tweet out an anti-Semitic video in silence. And again, that doesn't mean that the rest of us can't say anything, but there seems to me a clear gap. If we, if we can agree that all of these things are wrong, then why don't we see that same pushback on anti-Semitism that we see with all these other things? Brendan, I agree with you 100%. <coughs> I've written a little bit about this. Um, the anti-Semitism on the left, and, and let me swing now in that direction because you properly raise it, is a serious problem. Um, and you know progressives will deny it. Uh, to the dying day, there's a wonderful Orwell line about how, you know, uh, pickpockets don't go to the races with a sign that says thief on their lapel. And, and that, in my view, is the, an apt way of looking at the purported progressives. Uh, think about, for example, the Black Lives Matter leadership, which excluded Jews uh, at various points. Um, the LGB, the feminist groups that have said that, and the LGBT groups that have said uh, that Jews, Jewish women, can't be part of this because you uh, you believe in in Israel, uh, all perfectly fine. The, as far as the, the, the many on the on the left are concerned, this um, humiliation and demonization of Jews on campus because of their national identity because they believe in a Jewish homeland, would that ever be tolerated on the part of those progressives? If, as we said before, it was done to blacks, LGBT community members, Asian Americans, never, never, totally acceptable uh, when it comes to Jews. Um, and, uh, you know, it, saying, oh, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm just X, Y, or Z, please. Please, um, there is a uh, indulgence of it, as I said. There is the bullying of various kinds, social and otherwise, that's going on of Jewish kids on campuses uh, and in progressive organizations. That, in my view, is loathsome. And I think you're you're quite right uh, that it's all well and good to point to the far right, but the far left has its own serious problems. All about the Benjamins, baby is a perfect example. And you couldn't even get in the Democratic Party, as it sounds like you probably know, it sounds like you're pretty well read on this stuff, uh, a clear denunciation of her. There was a mushed up resolution which said that, you know, uh, you know, uh, discrimination is never a good thing or some such nonsense that has had no meaning at all. Couldn't even get the Democratic caucus to clearly condemn that. You know, that speaks volumes. Yeah. And just to be fair, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gossar have said equally horrendous things without strong denunciations from the right. But I think it just goes to your point that we're seeing that on the extremes of both sides. I do want to come back to the anti-Israel versus anti-Semitic type things, because I, I think you said it earlier, for someone like Representative Omar, maybe she just is able to hide behind anti hide her anti-Semitism behind, you know, anti-Zionist, anti-Israeli rhetoric. But there has to be a way to criticize the state of Israel and what they're doing without being anti-Semitic. So how 
how were people able to separate that and not just take uh, take legitimate criticism on the Israeli government as anti-Semitic? You, you, it's such a good question. Um, by the way, if you want to see a society which is bitterly critical of the Israeli government, go to Israel, because in Israel, it's just beyond belief. The consequence of a free press, a raucous free press, an insanely raucous political system where everybody is pointing fingers and criticizing everybody else. The notion that criticism of Israeli policy X or Israeli policy Y or the current government or the former government or what week is it, you know, the next Israeli <laughs> um, is anti-Semitic. I don't buy that at all. Not one bit. Where it crosses the line to me, and, and actually one can find this in the State Department's own definition of anti-Semitism, because the State Department has one, where you, um, I, I probably shouldn't paraphrase the State Department definition, but it's a good one, where you basically demonize Israel and liken it to the Nazis, or, uh, uh, or um, deny its right to exist, or engage in double standards that are so egregious that they can't be explained by anything other than animus, then, then that crosses the line. However, I take your point, it's a serious one, you know, that's awfully nuanced, and so one has to be careful. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And so I guess one final question to wrap this topic. So it's now getting more coverage in the press, right? We have Adidas moving on from Kanye and the Nets suspending Kyrie and Nike moving on from him and people denouncing Trump's tweets. And you would say all of these things are good, but do you have any other, aside from just continuing to shine a light on this and speak out against it, is there anything else people could or should be doing to try to combat this rise in anti-Semitism? Well, I think that, I mean, the, the good news amidst the bad is that there has been, from what I can see, a widespread, if slow, to materialize outcry about uh, Kanye and Kiri Irving and stuff like that with organizations uh, jettisoning them um, I, I think that, unfortunately, the pressure that, that, that the pressure has to be kept up and intensified to meet the existing threat. And that, I think, means calling it out, calling it out, calling it out. And, and it also means people who hold themselves out as being progressives doing some soul searching really quickly, uh, and uh, understanding that they have the obligation. It's not enough to point at, you know, uh, right-wing nutcase X or Y, but if it's happening on campuses or in progressive circles, rather than go underground yourself <coughs> and kind of think to yourself, that doesn't seem quite right, write about it, talk about it, call it out, go on social media. And I mean, that, that's where it's in the marketplace of ideas, ultimately, where 
the battleship either moves this way very slowly or it moves that way uh, very slowly. I think we're at sort of a hinge point right now where, you know, it's pretty much a jump ball where America goes on issues of hate uh, writ large. It's a jump ball. I don't know which way the ball bounces myself. Yeah, and I think that's a probably a good transition into the escalating political violence that we have seen in, in recent months. So it obviously exploded into national consciousness if it hadn't been before two weeks ago when an individual broke into Speaker Nancy Pelosi's house and attacked her husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer. The individual explicitly stated that he was looking for Nancy. He was armed not only with two hammers, but with zip ties and duct tape and said that his goal was to find her and tie her up and, quote, make her tell him the truth. If she didn't tell him the truth, which he expected, he was going to physically batter her. Again, Paul Pelosi went to the hospital with a fractured skull and numerous other injuries. He's 82 years old. Nancy Pelosi is 80 years old. And this is obviously the most real example of political violence that we've seen recently. The other one, which luckily didn't go as far as the individual probably wanted, was back in the summer, Ricky and I talked about the assassination attempt uh, that was luckily averted on Justice Kavanaugh's life when the individual went and armed himself and traveled to Justice Kavanaugh's neighborhood and luckily decided not to when he saw some security. But so we've had two pretty high profile things, an assassination attempt uh, really on a justice of the Supreme Court and the Speaker of the House within a few months. This probably, although incredibly scary, is probably not shocking to people who have been paying attention in, in recent years. But Jeff, you've written that while perhaps both the far left and far right are somewhat equally to blame for the rise in anti-Semitism, that might not exactly be the case with the rise in political violence. I think you, you're right about my view about that, because one thing that, that, that you left out, which I uh, regard as seminal, is January 6th. I mean, I sometimes, yeah. so I teach, I teach uh, at, at, at Brown, and we sometimes find ourselves discussing in these classes, <clears throat> what would it take uh, you, you know, for there to be a, a national consensus, a truly national consensus about something. Um, we, uh, well, well, let's actually go be, even before January 6th, the pandemic. You, we often talk about the fact that, well, national crises will bring America together. Don't worry about it. You know, when there's a national crisis, uh, Americans will come together and people talk about September 6th. Okay. <clears throat> you have a pandemic, which is wiping out hundreds of thousands of people and ravaging the economy and destroying families and communities. Uh, and you've got government obviously trying to find ways to save lives and we've got kidnapping attempts against the, the, uh, the governor of, of Michigan. Tony Fauci, for the love of God, has to go every place with two security guards, uh, uh, you know, with, with, 
with apologies to your listeners, you've got people on social media and at throngs going basically, fuck you, don't tell us that we have to basically uh, wear a mask uh, or we should wear a mask to protect our families and our, and, and our communities. I mean, that is an eye opener, right? I mean, that to me, that was pre-January 6th, of course, uh, January 6, 2021. It was, it was uh, uh, almost a year before that. That's an eye-opener for people looking to see about American society coming across, coming apart at the seams. Uh, wouldn't you have expected that that would have brought together some level of national unity rather than massive amounts of American people saying, don't you tell me that I should uh, <coughs> try to protect my fellow citizens? Would that really have happened 40, 50, 60 years ago, let alone more? No, something has changed. So now you go to January 6th. A, an insurrection attempt with cops having the bejesus beaten out of them uh, by, by people who were called there for the express purpose of overthrowing the United States uh, elections and the Constitution? Would you not imagine that there would be something approaching a consensus that that was, oh, I don't know, distasteful? No, you've got a 50-50 split. You know, ah, come on, whatever, you know, or worse than that. And that was political violence, of course. That was, that's exactly what that was. And you had in one party uh, looking the other way at it, saying it was all fake news, saying it was a, an ordinary tourist visit, <coughs> or whatever form of bullshit uh, was spouted uh, by these people. And, and more or less, half the country thinks, yeah, that's right. Or at a minimum, isn't offended by that. That bespeaks a country which is not the country we, that I grew up in, not the country that we've had before. Something is different. That rock has really been lifted. And it's been lifted in a way that not only uh, has, has allowed... Uh, you know, racism and, 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 and homophobia and, and prejudice of one kind or another to, to, to emerge, but something else, something else. And that is uh, the normalization of uh, behavior, which is sharply, dramatically, unmistakably antithetical to the American values that we always thought we had. So I, um, although, so there was a violence and threats of violence at the beginning of the pandemic and throughout played out at school committee meetings and local board meetings and the like, people showing up at state capitals with guns for the love of God, uh, threatening to kidnap a governor because she you know, thought there should be a, a policy to try to protect kids or whatever, please, you got to be kidding me. And that's okay. As opposed to generating widespread uniform revulsion across the board. Um, I don't, but your question is what caused that? Where did that come from? I don't know. I don't know. The only thing I think I know is if we are lucky it will take us a while to roll it back. And if we're not so lucky, I don't know what happens. Do, do you think, and maybe you're sort of alluding to this, that there's something specific 
about what happened in January 6th with regard to like politicians. I mean, sort of general unrest, riots and things are, I guess, not new for the United States, but there was obviously something different about you know, storming the Capitol in a way that it kind of shed a little bit of that mystique. I, and I guess, you know, part of uh, sometimes it, oddly enough, a little hard to remember exactly how I was feeling on that day. But I remember one of the things was I was just so shocked because growing up, there was this idea that, you know, Secret Service everywhere, all over Washington, D.C., if you start to, you know, start to climb the wrong fence, it might be a shoot on site situation. And then to just see this kind of very different reaction to what was happening and you know, seeing that as like a, a changing point in terms of how people viewed uh I don't, you know, there's the sanctity of office, but also just kind of the, the national understanding. Obviously, we've had sex, successful assassinations in our history and, you know, from the 60s on. And But it seemed like in the early 2000s, late 90s, very different sort of feeling around government. And maybe some of that mystique has kind of been shattered. I'm wondering how you think about that in terms of how that sort of precipitates what we've seen more recently with the Pelosi's or with Justice Kavanaugh? Yeah, I think that shattered is exactly the right word. I think that America's image of itself has been shattered. I think the reality of American uh, norms have been shattered. Uh, I, I think that when you have, you know, 40%, 50% of the country um, okay with a, a bloody, violent, deliberate mob aimed at overturning an election, something has been shattered. It's not just, unfortunately, uh, you know, the shattering of, of, of Paul Pelosi's skull is uh, is indicative of something even broader. I mean, jokes about the shattering of the skull of an 82-year-old man by the candidate for governor of Arizona uh, or Tucker Carlson or people like that. I mean, wouldn't you imagine that deliberate attack on an 82 year old grandfather and the threat to shatter the knees to break the kneecaps of the speaker would bring out uh, universal condemnation universal revulsion rejection of those who laughed at it I don't think that's what we saw <coughs> although excuse me uh, it's too soon to tell, but I wonder if that attack on uh, uh, Paul Pelosi and the mocking, sneering, snarling, sarcastic uh, uh, response to it by some in the Republican Party, I wonder if that didn't have some impact on the midterms. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's another good transition is we're still 
figuring out what exactly happened in the midterms, not what we like actually not even trying to get like beneath the surface of why we know what happened happened, but also there are still things, many house seats in several Senate races that are up for grabs, but so it's a little too early to come to any conclusions, but do you have any initial convenient segue or what? Yeah, you really do. This is, this is great. Making my job easy. Uh, So do you have any initial thoughts on the midterms? Are there, are there any things that you think we might be able to take away as we start to analyze what transpired in the next few weeks? Well, it was a so-so night for crazy, and that's good. Uh, uh, but it isn't as though, you know, there were not election deniers in whom, and I personally think that the word crazy fits uh, that as well as any other word. It wasn't as though there weren't cra- uh, election deniers who won. They did. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, although you'd expect it. Um, uh, J.D. Vance, um, and there were uh, people out in Arizona, that Secretary of State uh, candidate, I think, I forget his name, uh, you know, won. There are people who won, uh, but but many of them lost, and not as many of them that one thought might win won. And it's it's possible that that begins the the slow, painful reversal of the battleship America in the other direction. Um, You know, as somebody pointed out, I think this morning, uh, it would be nice if the Republican Party rejected the Republicans who spoke out against Trump over the last several uh, uh, days, spoke out against him, not on the basis that, uh, you know, there was no red wave, but on other bases, <coughs> a moral basis. Um, and frankly, if I had to guess, I would guess that that notwithstanding the, gee, I think maybe we should move in another direction, you know, tentative language employed by some of the GOP over the last 48 hours, I have the feeling that's going to morph into, of course, I'm going to support him uh, if he's, you know, you know, going forward, you can almost feel that starting to happen as people, uh, say, did I say that we thought, I thought we should move forward. I meant to say that we were, we should move forward with Donald Trump, you know, uh, that sort of thing. So, you know, it's still the case, you know, the poll that I've seen coming out of the midterms, the exit polls showed that 39% of Americans had an unfavorable view Strike that. 39% of Americans had a favorable view of Donald Trump and 58% had an unfavorable point of view. And that's being pointed to as, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead and so forth. I look at that, and again, I apologize, but this is my perception. I think 39% of Americans actually tell pollsters that they have a favorable view of this. That's the percentage that tell them. So add a few points to that. What does that say? And again, this is not, I mean, the brutishness, the crudeness, the meanness, the narcissism, the viciousness, the the disregard for democratic norms, and on and on and on that are represented there. And (coughs) four in 10 Americans actually tell pollsters, I have a favorable view of that. Let that sink in for a second. 
we are, uh, uh, I know that MSNBC and the Rachel Maddow crowd uh, are crowing that this is the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end. I'm not so sure. Yeah, that that's interesting. I I guess um, you know one one article that you wrote in early September about uh, how the Dobbs decision was going to have an impact on um, this midterms. Like I I guess I'm wondering how you think about sort of the impact of sort of recent sort of court led social policy from the right versus uh you know kind kind of uh a more like regular occurrence which is that after you know after the the party in power wins the presidential election it's like fairly normal to have a reversal in the midterms right like i guess especially when there are things going on like high inflation we've seen layoffs in the tech sector like there are there are things that would say that the picture here is not all rosy um i yeah i wonder i guess like where you're seeing the competing themes because you've talked a lot about how trump has had both yeah is it sort of an omnipresent uh member or like a, a contributing factor on the elections but i wonder how you're weighing that against some of the other clear undercurrents of uh you know, things that drive people to the polls, let's say. Yeah, and I definitely don't want to come off like the Grim Reaper because the truth of the matter is there is something which seems positive and, and cheering about the, the, the midterm. I mean, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't uh, know very well because you both know it very well. The historical precedent of, of, of the party out of power uh, picking up significant uh, seats in the first midterm, it, it's powerful. Um, you have a president whose approval rating is, you know, let us say 44-ish uh, percent. You have the inflation, which we all know about, and which has been the single issue which the media has drummed and drummed and drummed and drummed away at for months now, even though in parentheses, our inflation rate is actually lower than much of the rest of the world, at least portions of the world with, with, with whom we compare ourselves. Uh, you know, the gas prices, the food prices, I don't know, it's just things are not good, the wrong track index and so forth. There was every reason to believe that there would be, if not a red wave, then at least a red rivulet. Uh, and that there was not does suggest that there were, um, you know, millions, some millions of Americans, at least in the key states, that said, yeah, you know what? <clears throat> I hope Biden doesn't run again. The gas prices are terrible. I do think the country's on the wrong track. Uh, but I don't like what I'm seeing from people on the, in the GOP. And uh, I don't like it because on the, on the abortion issue, I don't like it on the democracy issue. By the way, issues which the, all the pollsters said were like way, way down. All the polls or virtually all the polls in the last couple of weeks said inflation was by far the dominant issue. I know I saw that um, in Michigan where the Democratic Party flipped the uh, state houses 
uh, and Gretchen uh, Whitmer won by 10 points, that 47% of the of, uh, Michiganders told pollsters that the single most important issue was abortion. And I think that inflation was 28%. Um, I don't even know how you, you know, measure concern about threats for democracy against democracy. Um, it all sounds so vague, but I do think that at some level for some people, there was some sense that this is not the America that I grew up in or that I read about or that my parents grew up in or that I wanna have here. Yeah, and you hope that's the case. I think a common thread through each of these three short conversations that we've had is that we're at a, as you termed it, a hinge point in the country in so many ways. We're at a hinge point in how we're going to react to hate, maybe particularly anti-Semitism, but hate of all kinds, a hinge point about what we're going to do about political violence, are we going to continue to, if not outright encourage it, to laugh and joke about it, or are we going to reject it? And we're at a, certainly a political hinge point here of where do we go in the next two years? And I think we'll know much more about that in the coming months, which will certainly be fascinating. Um, so, Jeff, that, that's all we have for you. Is there anything else you want to leave? No, no. I just want to thank both of you for the invitation, and I'm awfully impressed with both of you. And I congratulate you on what is a great, great podcast. Well, we, you know, it's our turn to be humble because we greatly appreciate that. And um, we're, we're very, we have been very fortunate and we continue to be very fortunate that people like you take time to come and speak with us. And so we feel really lucky and appreciative that you did. It really was my pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you. So once again, I don't know how many times that we can keep saying this, but we're just incredibly humbled and grateful and appreciative that people like Jeff continue to give us so much of their time. It's it's, it's really incredible. Uh, Ricky, do you have any immediate thoughts on, on the conversation we just had? Yeah, I mean, well, just to echo what you said, it's been it's been a pretty cool last couple of months for our podcast. Definitely just coming up, just coming across two years. Um, maybe we're hitting our <laughs> maybe we're hitting. Our, <laughs> um, no, it, it was. I think it was a really insightful conversation because I think he is. I mean, rightly pointed out, right? Like, so for someone like me on the left, when I've seen things about anti-semitism i it doesn't like like the you know the injustice siren inside my head doesn't often go off as loudly as, as some of these other things and i think i do have to do some thinking about exactly exactly why that is um i mean part of it i think i was trying to you know there isn't and, 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 you know, part of it may be even be like a, a societal trope that there doesn't feel like there is the same that in the way that, you know, you make a racist comment towards the towards the black community or and punching down in, in a certain way that anti-Semitism maybe doesn't feel like that. But that's that's going to sound terrible. And it's yeah. it's really like more of a perception thing than anything. Um, but it's. I mean, you know, even when you rattled off all of the things that have been going on, uh, cer certainly like, you know, there's no way to, de to deny it. But the 
overall like understanding of how pervasive it, it has become is something that in some ways, I don't know if ignored is the right word, but I just haven't been paying as much attention to. Yeah, it, it was definitely humbling in a different way to be like, you know, how much time have you and I spent on this podcast in the last two years talking about racism and systemic racism and as, as well, we should have. But I can see and I know the Jewish friends that I have on social media have been posting about this. And I I can imagine, not to speak for them, but it, it has felt really isolating in a lot of ways in the last few months or even few years when you see so many people come out in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, as they should, or come out in support of transgender people, as they should. But then when you have so many examples of hate directed at your religion, there seems to be crickets from those same people. And and that that this isn't just like, uh, you know, finger pointing, it's thumb pointing too of it's it's not been great that we haven't talked and thought enough about it that and or have not called that out as much. And I do think he's right that it's, there are obvious targets out there. There are, unfortunately, as, as he rightly pointed out, this huge increase in the presence of hate groups here in the United States in the last six years. And it's awful, but it, there's definitely some sense that it's easier to to point those out. And the way he kept coming back to like college campuses and or, you know, we're talking about really kids that are, are facing pretty widespread anti-Semitism across the country. It's happening. He brought up just a few examples that are local to Boston. But if, if you've been following the news, you've seen it in New York and in Indiana and California. And it's, uh, it's, it, he's right. Like that, what, what everyone needs to do a better job of calling that out and being allies to, to Jewish people who are facing attacks like this. Yeah, no, 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 totally. I, I don't, I don't even, um, I don't know that there's there's kind of a a better way to say that because in some ways like the just trying to understand like how do we treat this type of problem within our society and and kind of globally whether it's anti-semitism or something else you know we talked about kind of you know there's there's the societal norms that keeps a lid on a lot of these things and when those are removed and all of a sudden a lot of these things are out in the open that is well it's, it's part in part it's dangerous obviously um but i i do i do think and maybe i was trying to get at this and perhaps not the right way during the interview that there is like an opportunity to address it in a way that if it stays under wraps and nobody talks about it that that we don't have that opportunity you know, i agree and i think he would too i think his point was even though he like kind of slightly disagreed with the your hypothesis and your question, I think his point is that like if if the rock has been lifted and it's out in the open, then everyone needs to say that this stuff is unacceptable. And right now that's not happening, right? Like what's happened is the rock has been lifted and a, a significant portion of society, as he rightly pointed out on both the far left and the far right, are kind of like tacitly, if not openly, okay with it. And that's where you need, that we as a society need to be like, this isn't okay. And then I think the what's it like the best, the, the best disinfectant is sunlight or whatever that saying is where it's like, all right, we've now brought all of these people out and we can now condemn them, but less, thus far we haven't. And so I think that's a challenge for all of us to do, do better condemning all forms of, of that hate, including anti-Semitism shouldn't be treated any differently than any other form of hate that we've seen in recent years. Yeah. And maybe a, a parting thought on the, on the topic, I, th- I thought you asked a really good question around 
sort of the criticism of Israel and, and in really a tactful way because he was connecting sort of the Jewish identity with obviously the state of Israel. And I thought he gave like a, a phenomenal answer in that, like, yeah, feel free to disagree with the policies of the state. You know, you will find no no greater audience for that than within the country itself. But it it is because of the charge nature of the issue. Like, it's not something that you should sort of tweet out without uh, properly understanding what you're talking about. And that oftentimes, whether you realize it or not, a lot of those criticisms have anti-Semitic backing because they are when they're not founded on specifics around like what uh, what specifically is Israel doing that you're in, like in opposition to when it's just against the state of Israel you have to ask yourself like what is the what is the yeah what are we what are we what are you really saying here and i think that was a really fair point and something that you know someone who is frequently critical of Israel i have to make sure to to keep in mind more often yeah, and to be fair, there is there are ample reasons to be critical of the state of Israel. We just they are not being anti-Israeli government action and being anti-Semitic to me at least are two different things. But I think, as you said, he did a really nice job being like, "There's a clear line here where you are criticizing the Israeli government's actions versus when you're using tropes and sentiments like classic historical um, sentiments that are." objectively anti-Semitic. And I think that's a really fair point. And like you said, we all need to keep an eye on on where, where that line is. Yeah, I, I think yeah. maybe just transitioning quickly to, I know we're, we're going to have a sort of a deeper conversation about the election. And, and so maybe just to touch on the, the political violence aspect of it. I'm I guess maybe I was a, a little surprised as someone who probably had experience with uh, you know, unrest in the 70s under the Vietnam War, that they're, that they're really, for him, the, that, that we are at some kind of a, the, you know, the precipice or this inflection point. Um, it may, yeah, I, I don't know, it's, it's perhaps not as, uh, as, uh, as optimistic as, as a, a tone as I might have thought from, you know, because in right. our country's history, we've had some pretty fraught moments, obviously not ones that you and I have lived through, but at least that we've read a little bit about that seem to have, you know, torn at kind of the fabric in in a way um, of American society, of societal norms. But when, you know, the way he describes it, you definitely have to reconsider, you know, how different is this moment than than past moments that have had sort of similar tones? Yeah, because sometimes we get depressing and pessimistic in our conversations and we're like, all right, we're probably just putting on rose colored glasses. You look at the 60s when you had the assassinations in rapid succession of MLK and Malcolm X and Robert Kennedy. I think the difference and obviously I didn't live through this, so I don't know this. But I think the difference that Jeff was pointing out was that the vast overwhelming majority of United States society, regardless of your race or your political persuasions, condemn those those accidents. Those, I mean, those, those assassinations. That's not what we've seen in recent years with attacks on, on people, whether in theory or unfortunately now in practice. And 
you know, it, it becomes a thing where it seems like we're getting ever closer. He obviously January 6th is kind of like sui generis in some ways. But like if you look at Kavanaugh, where it was like, man, that was really scary. I'm glad something worse didn't happen. Then you look at Paul Pelosi and you're like, man, that was really scary. Like he could have been killed there. Lucky he wasn't. It's a it's a scary next step. And I, I know that a lot of a lot of lawmakers are thinking that, you know, what's it going to take? And even if it does take that. Are we going to get the kind of backlash that something like that deserves? And if we're not seeing it with a a politically motivated attack on the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who, again, is 82 years old, that's worrisome. And I I see where Jeff's coming from there. Yeah, yeah, I I think that was a a great point to to highlight, like the crazy people in some way have have always existed, but society's like universal no no that person is crazy and what they did was crazy and wrong and all this stuff without that all of a sudden you're in a very different uh yes yeah that's the that's the kind of connective thread here right is that all this the craziness has been normalized and what he hypothesized and certainly remains to be seen is that maybe some of the results of this election are starting to to push back on that Again, remains to be seen. But we can be optimistic, Ricky. We'll, we'll end on a, high, on a positive note. Yeah. Let's end on a high note. All right. Another great one. So, again, one final thank you to Jeff and thank you to everyone that listens as always. Yeah. See you next time. See you. We stay up all night. On Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began So morning's you away So morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value of sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning lets your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me when we have trouble seeing 
the human for the politics It's trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find And change the lies and folks with different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made all arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made all arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning bird.